All right. Romans 6, verse 15 is where we're going to start. Deliberately trying to be briefer tonight, as I don't really like cutting into our time of prayer. So try to end on time. Hope and pray that our time in Romans 6 has been uh, encouraging, where you need to be encouraged, but also hopefully convicting, where maybe you need some convicting. It's one of those texts that does both very well. (laughs) Um, I was reflecting on why I chose Romans 6 um, for these three weeks, and it really just comes down to such a practical text on sanctification. Uh, Sometimes we just need, okay, what should I do? And the text really calls us to simplicity in the Christian life, present yourselves to God and not to sin. So practically, um, how do we live that out? Our whole Christian life takes place in that realm of sanctification. We've been justified, and we've been declared righteous by faith in the person and work of, of Christ. We're awaiting glorification. But until then, I mean, our Christian existence is sanctification. That's the realm that we live in. And Christ is continually doing that work. He's rooting out, as we've been talking about, the power and the presence of sin, that we've been saved from the penalty And he has delivered us from the power, and eventually in glorification, we will be saved completely from the presence of sin. But sanctification, it's vital to have texts like this um, in your mind. I think Mark said weeks ago, this is a a chapter that should be well-worn in your Bible as we continually go back to Romans 6. Another one, I was thinking of this before tonight, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 puts it so simply, this is the will of God, your sanctification, so, you know, maybe you're thinking, it's like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know if I should do this. Oh, what should I do? It's like, well, I don't know about that, but I know this one thing. This is what God wants you to do. Sanctification, right? This is the will of God, your sanctification. And passages like this, Romans 6, help us uh, and equip us. How do we do that? How do we live out that life of sanctification? So to bring you up to speed, maybe this is your first time, hopefully not. I don't know if these are all recorded, so I don't know if they're online, if you missed one, or even if you wanted to go back and listen to them. Um, But just to bring you up to speed in Romans 6, Paul's been arguing that believers have been united to Christ. Remember that language in verses 1 to 11. All these things have taken place with him. We've been buried with him. We've been raised to new life with him. We were crucified with him. All these things happened with him. That's what we mean when we talk about union with Christ. We've been united to him, and we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, as I mentioned, and also the power. Whereas formerly we were united to and represented by Adam, we were uh, dead in our transgressions and sin and without hope, as Ephesians 2. Now in Christ we do have hope. We've been united to him. We're no longer enslaved to sin, as we're going to talk about this evening, and we can walk in newness of life presently. Yes, we're awaiting glorified bodies, but the resurrection life in many ways even begins now, as we are believers As we saw last week, though sin has been knocked off the throne, you might say, sin is still a jealous, deposed ruler. He doesn't like not being on the throne anymore. He doesn't like the power that he's lost, much like, you know, when a president, uh, maybe even a recent one, doesn't like that he's not the president anymore, and he lets you know, right? He seeks to regain his power. And so sin is like that. And so therefore, Paul says what? We must present our members to God as weapons for righteousness, rather uh, presenting them to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, as sin will ever seek to gain advantage over us. 
If you remember last week, I just want to mention this briefly. Paul gives us this incredible hope in Romans 6.14. Look again there. Romans 6.14. He's been giving us these commands in verses 12 and 13. You need to do this. Consider this. Don't let sin reign. Present your members to God. But then he gives the reason for all of this being possible. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. It's an incredible verse. The Bible teaches that grace is God's power not only to save, but also to sanctify. We don't move on from God's grace in the gospel. Galatians is almost all about that. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, we don't move on from the gospel. We are under grace, no longer under the law, which gave sin its power. We looked at all these passages in Romans where sin, or excuse me, the law makes sin explicitly clear. It increases the condemnation. We're not going to look at it um, in our study. We're, we're done after this. I'm, I'm cut off after Romans 6. But if we kept going in Romans 7, Paul's not done with the law. He's actually going to clarify um, his teaching on the law. And he even says in Romans 7 verse 5 that the law actually arouses our sinful passions. The law tells us what to do, but it gives us no power to obey but the grace of God does. It does empower the Christian life. And so with all of this, I concluded last week that sanctification does not come by means of the law. And so as we live the Christian life, if we're simply living in do's and don'ts, we're going to fall. We have to go, since we're under grace, not to do's and don'ts, but that it's been done for us by the person of Christ. Well, if everything we've said so far is true, that we are not under law, but we are under grace. We're no longer under the dominion and power of sin, that we're free from all of that. Does that mean we are free to live in sin? We're under grace. Therefore, what does it matter what my life looks like? It doesn't matter. I am under grace. That's essentially the rhetorical question in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Paul, what you're saying sounds really, really great, that we're no longer under the tyranny of the law. But if we're just under grace, I mean, doesn't that just destroy biblical morality? I, I mean, what's going to go on here? I mean, are Christians just going to live trash-filled lives of sin, and that's okay? That's Paul's rhetorical question that he asks, and he answers, what does he say? By no means. No. That's not true. Christians cannot live trash-filled lives of sin because they've been set free from sin and, get this, we've been enslaved to God. That is the main point of this section. Christians have been set free from sin and have been enslaved to God. In junior high and high school, I think some of you guys know this, but pretty much the only thing I listened to was what we would call like charismatic music. Okay? Like I listened to Elevation, um, Hillsong, Bethel, Jesus Culture was one of my favorites, okay, uh, especially in junior high. And they have a song, I actually had to look up if it's still one of their mo most popular songs, and it still is, I think it's their third most popular song, Break Every Chain. Has anyone heard this song? It's like 10 minutes long, and they just say, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, break every chain, and it's just the same thing over and over and over. I listen to that a ton. Now, I get what they're trying to say, but the Bible guy inside me, his voice, you know, he's down over here, and he's just like, Ugh. it just, I cringe 
It's like, have you not read Romans 6? Like, we need to think this through. Yes, the Bible is very clear. God has set us free from the power and tyranny of being enslaved to sin. Amen and amen. Okay, we don't want to deny that because the scripture is very clear on that. But it's not like we're free to do anything we want now. If we're going to say that, you know, if we're using that slavery and chain analogy, Paul says here very clearly in verse 18, what? Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We're slaved from slavery to another form of slavery. Slavery is central to Paul's argument in these nine verses. The word for slave or slavery appears eight times. It's all throughout this passage. I think the, verse part, the first part of verse 19, it's a tongue twister, it's kind of a summary of this whole section. He says this, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's giving us an illustration, okay? He's saying, if you understand this, this is kind of a picture of what the Christian life is like. Here's how you know what I'm talking about. I think it's easy for us as Americans to shy away from the language of slavery because of the evils that happened here in the 18th and 19th century, but we also don't want to import that and bring that baggage back to first century Rome. Okay? They're two different contexts. Paul does not apologize for using slavery imagery, so I don't think we need to constantly, you know, sometimes... People say you don't need to you know, die the death of a thousand apologies. It's like, okay, now I know this. No, like Paul is okay with using this imagery. I really think what he's trying to illustrate is the reality that he writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Listen to this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I mean, it doesn't get more clear than that. You were bought. You are owned by another. You are not your own. You see, grace is the new dominion and the power that we are under. Christians are those who have been set free from sin and have been enslaved to God. But the key and vital difference is that this slavery is not one that's based in fear, but one that's based in love. Grace changes our hearts. It renews our minds. By the power of the Holy Spirit, this is actually a slavery that we long to be in. We embrace this wholeheartedly. We love being enslaved to God and being under the dominion and power of God's righteousness. All that is introduced this section, verses 15 to 23. I want to go through this passage a little differently tonight. Typically, I do you know, a couple points and preaching points and you know, stuff like that. Verse by verse, I'm not going to do that. I want to divide the content up under two headings. If you have the notes, here's the, the, the fill-ins there. Number one, slavery to sin leading to death. And number two, slavery to righteousness leading to life. So slavery to sin leading to death, and slavery to righteousness leading to life. Any and every person ever to exist is either enslaved to sin or is enslaved to righteousness. There is no exception. Maybe you've heard, you know, a non-believer say something along the lines of this. Well, yes, I'd love to come to Christ. I would be a believer. I would give God all of my life. I would serve him, but then I would have to give up all my freedoms. So you have my permission. You can say this graciously, 
but you can say, based on Romans 6, that's just really dumb. You don't actually have those freedoms. The unbeliever is under an evil, oppressive, uh, radical, intense slavery. They are not free. I'd also add, yes, we can talk about that for the unbeliever. That's true. But I'd also add that this passage destroys the radical personal autonomy that we love to have as Americans. Right? We don't like outside powers or foreign nations telling us what to do, or if some, you know, store says, oh, we're going to, you know, make you do this, metaphorically within us, we're like, no, we're not going to do that, and I'm going to dump the tea into the harbor again. Like, no! You guys got the Revolutionary War Boston Tea Party now? Okay. I like history. But, but, it, but within me, I mean, even within that, I'm an American, and I'm just like, no! I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. And I think, sadly, that same American spirit can creep into believers in the church. Well, I don't really care what the church tells me to do. It doesn't matter what these godly counselors are telling me to do. Yeah, I know the Bible says this, but I don't care. And we can walk away from the truth. Romans 6 teaches us that there is no radical Christian autonomy. You and I are not free from outside powers and influences. We are not. We are under the dominion of and enslaved to grace. Every single one of us. And so if you grasp that, you'll understand what Paul is saying here. We're no longer um, represented by Adam. And number one, we're no longer enslaved to sin. Slavery to sin leading to death. I just want to walk through um, just how horrible of a condition this is. I think that's what Paul's doing here. Let's think through slavery to sin leading to death. Look at verse 16. He's introduced this passage saying, no, absolutely not. We should not live in sin. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? We can ask ourselves a similar question practically. Who are you obeying? Who are we obeying? That's who you're enslaved to. If you are proactively presenting yourself to obey sin, you are enslaved to sin. It's not that complicated, Paul's argument. This is what he is saying. If Paul wasn't clear, listen to Jesus. In John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They're saying the same thing. If the pattern of someone's life is living in sin, then they are enslaved to sin. Verse 16 goes on to say that this sin that they're enslaved to leads to death. Not only physically in the present will it destroy, as we're going to talk about, but spiritually for all eternity. Sin leads to eternal death and condemnation in hell. Sin is a destructive, horrible master. Look at the middle of verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Now pause there. Paul is contrasting the believer's old enslavement to sin with their current enslavement to Christ. He's saying, remember these 
ways you used to live. Think about this. And I think he's doing this to get us to look back and be warned about sin. I remember one sermon, I can't remember who it was, but he said, God gives us the gift of the memory of our sins so that we'd be warned against doing them again. I was like, well, that's tough, but that's true. Like, when we remember how terrible it was, we go, I don't want to do that again. I mean, we remember that the stove is hot, so we don't touch it again. And so Paul is doing the same. Remember what sin led to. Think, consider the consequences. Apart from Christ, you used to present your members to, what does he say, impurity, leading to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Paul's saying that sin is a downward spiral. Sin blinds us. It twists the truth. It corrupts. It leads even further down that pit of destruction. Sin is a vicious and cruel master that binds us more and more to even worse rebellion, while at the same time it destroys the very life of the one committing that sin. I mean, how often do we see this played out with maybe even family or friends where they are enslaved to drugs or money, and we see how it destroys And I think we are deceiving ourselves if we think that pride and jealousy don't do the same. You see, sin is a powerful master over the unbeliever. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Okay, so I take back my earlier statement. Actually, according to the Bible, the unbeliever actually is free from something. They are free from the power that enables them to please God. In other words, they can do everything except please him. I mean, think of just how horrible of a state that is. You can do everything except please God. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Sin tears down anyone and everyone. Sin binds the unbeliever and it leads them to ever-increasing sin and ultimately eternal death and condemnation. And that, that power of sin, is the power that Christians have been delivered from. Hallelujah. (laughs) We are no longer under that power. And Paul is saying, don't present yourselves again to that evil master. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. Think about these things, that you are dead to sin, therefore don't go back. Don't allow sin to reign. Now maybe at this point, you're thinking, with me often, how how can I do this? Like, this sounds hard. Maybe you're just overwhelmed, and at times in your own day-to-day life, you realize, man, I can't do this. I would just say this, being desperate for God's grace in your life is actually a really great place to be. That's where we need to be. We need to be at rock bottom. I would say this, we need to consider ourselves at rock bottom because you actually are at rock bottom. (laughs) And we need God's grace. So let me try and encourage you tonight by looking at the joy that is to be found in being enslaved to righteousness. So under that second heading, slavery to righteousness leading to life. Look back at verse 17. But thanks be to God, 
that you who were once slaves of sin, you no longer are, you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 18 has these verbs that we would call divine passives. What this means is that God is the one who has done these things. You have not. God is the one who has set the believer free from sin. God is the one who has caused us to become slaves of righteousness. He's the one who's done it. It's all a powerful work of the triune God. There has been a sovereign, effectual work of God in the heart of every single believer, in our hearts. Verse 17 is teaching that God has worked in us a new desire for a new obedience. Rather than serving sin willfully from a sinful heart, Christians now desire to serve God from a heart that's been renewed by grace. I I love verse 17 in particular. This is one of the main passages in Romans 6, one of the main verses that I constantly turn back to. Because sometimes, with a passage like this, it can easily lead some of us towards troubled thoughts about the state of our souls. Like in in day-to-day life. Well, sometimes my heart is corrupt and, and I give in to sin. Sometimes I just don't really desire to read my Bible. Like, I just don't want to do these things. I I don't feel like I love God like I'm supposed to. And and so does that mean that I'm still enslaved to sin? And so I think when we're helping ourselves or when we're helping others who are struggling in that way, we go to a passage like Romans 6.17 and we help them think through how they react with, how they react to and deal with sin. I heard this from someone, I can't remember who, but if you like this illustration, it does not come from me. Most of everything I say, if you like it, it's probably not original to me, okay? But he gave this illustration in terms of a believer with sin. He said, how do they react to the mud? Are they like a pig or are they like a sheep? How do they react to the mud of sin, like a pig or a sheep? A pig loves the mud. pig goes to the mud, wallows in it, is not, you know, trying to get out of the mud in a hurry. They like the mud. But on the contrary, a sheep, at least to my understanding, doesn't really like the mud. They want to get out of there. Now, sure, because they're a sheep, they're going to get dirty. They're a sheep. They're in the world. They are going to get dirty, but they want to get out of there. And so, maybe you counsel yourself or someone who needs help But I think you ask them this question, in our hearts, are we embracing sin like a pig in the mud, or are we struggling to be free from sin like a sheep? How do you react to sin? Now, we don't know and can't truly understand a person's heart, but we ask these types of questions, and actually, that's really comforting. If you go, yeah, I mean, I I stumbled in this way, but... It was horrible. I hated it. I wanted to get out of there. Hey, take comfort. Because that comes from Romans 6, 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart where you don't want to do that. So be encouraged. 
Look at verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So rather than bearing fruit leading to shame, as verse 21 says, now the Christian can and does bear fruit leading to sanctification. If the fruit of sin in verse 21 is death, the fruit of living righteous lives of obedience could not be better, eternal life. I think we often, or if you're like me, sometimes we view sanctification as our part in the equation of salvation. Okay, yes, God is the one who justifies. I get that. God is the one who's going to glorify. But my part in the y, x equal, or what is it? What's the slope? I don't even know what it is. It's been a long time. Right? My x, you know, instead of the y or the b, I got to do the sanctification. But let's not be led astray into thinking that we sanctify ourselves. Yes, it's true. God says, you must be holy as I am holy, but God is still the one who sanctifies us. Leviticus 20, verse 8, even when Israel was under the law, the scripture is very clear that God is the one who sanctifies. This is what he says, keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. God is the one who does that work. We come over to the new covenant in the life and ministry of the church. You and I, God is still the one who sanctifies his people. Here in Romans 6, Paul's been saying that Christians are slaves to righteousness and they, they bear fruit for God. Is that something we do in and of ourselves? No. No, not at all. It's in the Philippians 1.11. Paul, he's praying that the church in Philippi would be, quote, filled with the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of sanctification that comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness comes through our Lord and Savior. From election to justification to sanctification to glorification, all of it is a work of God. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 3.27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. How? By the law of faith. There is no room for boasting because there is not a work We can boast of doing by ourselves. Even the fruit of sanctification doesn't ultimately come from you. It comes from God, and that's why he gets all the glory. Come down to verse 23. This is really a summary verse. I think of all of chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You could say this, the universal minimum wage of sin is horrible. It's death. And notice what he says, the wages of sin. Paul clearly lays out, this is earned. The the wage that you get is what you deserve. If you are sowing sowing to sin and to the flesh, from the sin and from flesh, you will reap. If you're enslaved to sin, living out a life of sin, your reward and payment is eternal death. But... The gift of God. Notice he doesn't say wages. This is not earned or merited at all. This is a free gift from God that you specifically did not earn. That free gift is eternal life and comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, here in Romans 6, 
He's argued that Christians have presently been set free from slavery to sin and at the same time presently have been enslaved to God. We have been saved from slavery to another form of slavery. We have a kid's book that we read to Ruth that I'd highly recommend if you have kids called His Grace is Enough. Does anyone else have that book? It's really good. Sometimes kids' books put it so simply. And I think it summarizes what Paul's saying here in Romans 6. It says this, not free to sin more. He doesn't want that. Free to live free. And that's a great fact. Believing in Jesus, he gives a new heart and forgives all our sin so new life can start. It goes on to say, his grace is enough. It's so big and so free. His grace is enough to change you and to change me. And that's what's going on in Romans 6. The power of God's grace has taken control of our hearts and is changing us. Be encouraged. God is at work. Paul packs one final imperative in chapter 6 and verse 19. It's really an echo of the commands in verse 12 and 13. And I just want to use this to make two thoughts of application. Two thoughts of application. Look at the end of verse 19. We used to be enslaved to sin. We used to live in impurity and lawlessness. But now we are called to do this. Present your members, all of your mental, physical faculties, every capacity that you have to function. Present your members. Present them as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And so I just ask this question, who are we presenting ourselves to? Take some honest time, maybe this evening, at some point throughout this week. At some point, go back to Romans 6. Meditate on this. Pray through this passage. Think through your day-to-day life and analyze where you need to be more proactive in presenting yourself to the Lord. And in that process, I'd say, these are the two points. Number one, think through your process of heart change. Think through your process of heart change. I can still remember this illustration from um, Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He's talking about, um, you know, fruit trees and, you know, the root passages in the Bible that we have. And he gives this illustration of stapling fruit to a tree rather than changing the roots. And he's really drawing from Luke 6, 43 to 45. Just listen, I'll read it. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so with all of this, when we're thinking about, okay, how do I present my members not to sin but to God, it always goes back to the heart. We've got to address the heart. If we are just stapling good fruit to a bad tree, give it a couple months and you're going to get more bad fruit. We need to address the heart. Deal with the roots. I would say, especially in light of Romans 6, we need to strike at the roots of sin in our hearts. We need to not only uh, go on the offense, we need to do the defense as well. We're doing both. We're proactively defeating sin and living to God. And so ask yourself questions like this. What's the ultimate cause? Why am I responding this way? 
when so-and-so says this to me and I lash out in anger, well, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Is it pride? Is it jealousy? Is it hatred? Think through the heart. If we change the heart, then we change the fruit. And all of this, number two, don't lose heart. So think through how to change the heart. I'd also say, number two, don't lose heart. Thank God for the work of redemption and uniting us to himself. Thank him for the work that he has done, that he has delivered us from the dominion and power of sin. Thank God that verse 17 says that we've become obedient from the heart. Thank God that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Don't beat up your heart because God's grace has not perfected its work in you yet. Be patient with yourself. While we live on this earth, we will fall short. But praise God, we serve a gracious king, right? I want to end with this comforting Thomas Brooks quote. It's maybe a paragraph or two, but I'll end with this. I found this incredibly comforting relating to all of this. The Lord looks more upon your graces than he does upon your weaknesses. The Lord did not cast off Peter for his horrid sins, but rather looked upon him with an eye of love and pity. O admirable love, O matchless mercy, Christ looked more upon Peter's sorrow than his sin, more upon his tears than his oaths. The Lord will not cast away weak saints for their great unbelief, because there's a little faith in them. Or he won't cast them away for their hypocrisy because of the little sincerity that is in them. He won't cast them away for their pride because of the rays of humility that shine in them. He won't cast them away for their passion because of the grains of meekness that are in them. We will not throw away a little gold because of a great deal of dross that cleaves to it. Or a little wheat because it's mixed with much chaff. And will God? Will God? We do not cast away our garments because of a spot or books because of some blots, or jewels because of some flaws? And will the Lord cast away his dearest ones because of their spots, blots, and flaws? Surely no. No, God looks more upon the bright side of the cloud than the dark. God looks upon the pearl and not the spot in it. Where God sees but a little grace, he does, as it were, hide his eyes from those circumstances that might seem to deface the glory of it. Weak Christians are more apt to look upon their infirmities than on their graces. And because their gold is mixed with a great deal of dross, they are ready to throw away all his dross. Well, remember this, that the Lord Jesus has as great an interest in the weakest saints as the strongest. He has as an interest as a friend, a father, a husband. Though saints are weak, yea, very weak, that's what we are, he cannot but overlook their weaknesses and keep a fixed eye upon their graces. Is that comforting? That's good. Let's pray. God, thank you for your work in our lives. God, thank you that you have worked in our hearts, that you have caused us to be born again to a living hope, and that we have hearts that desire to serve and please you. Lord, help us when we don't. Lord, help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, that by the power of the Spirit we would live lives of righteous obedience. Lord, in all of this, our motivation is not do's and don'ts, but you have done the work. Lord, thank you that you um, look at the bright side of the cloud and do not 
concern yourself with the blots in our lives. Lord, thank you that you are a gracious king. Help us to live and serve you. We ask this in your name. Amen.